I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest, Sarah Wells, is an Olympic hurdler. Her event is won and lost by just milliseconds. She says a single moment, a half second, can be the difference between accomplishing your goals or watching them crash and burn in front of your eyes. And y'all, she's experienced both of those moments. After being cut from every high school sport, she finally decided to give track and field a try, mainly because it was a team she couldn't be cut from. But to her surprise, she didn't just pick up the sport quickly. She began to skyrocket to success, competing internationally just eight months after starting the hurdles. Sarah walks us through her journey to Olympic glory and her devastation after missing a second games. In this episode, we talk about injuries, failure, and how to redefine what success means. Sarah teaches us the importance of belief and the amazing impact we can have when we use our passions to solve problems. Sarah turned her own passion into the Believe Initiative, which has now impacted over 120,000 students across two countries. But before we jump into our conversation with Sarah, I want to read you a five-star review that we received on Apple iTunes. It's titled, Must Listen for Moms Too. It reads, As a mother of three, I turn to Laura's podcast for inspiration and guidance living my everyday life. Her wisdom, insights, and perspective transcend athletics. You don't have to be an athlete to overcome adversity, rise to the occasion, or conquer fear. We all have trials and tribulations. Knowing there's a library of Laura's knowledge provides peace of mind for me. What a resource to have at my fingertips. Since I can't live in her home, this is the next best thing. I love this so much. As a mama for myself, I'm so glad this is encouraging and teaching moms to be their very best version of themselves and that all things are possible for moms too. If you haven't already, please make sure to go hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening right now so that you don't miss a single episode. And if you've been enjoying The Pursuit of Gold, please consider giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review to let us know what you're enjoying the most. And don't forget to share those favorite episodes with your friends. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Sarah Wells, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so excited to share your story with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Well, okay. You're an Olympic hurdler and so many people know that about you, but I think it might be fair to say that in the beginning, it may not have appeared that sports were going to be your thing. (laughs) Tell, (laughs) Tell me about how this all began and how you actually got into track and field. Yeah, you're right. I was not good at sports. Um, I actually got cut from every single team in high school, like every single one, like (laughs) basketball, volleyball, soccer, you name it, I got cut. And I had a high school teacher see me in gym class. And he was like, I just saw you run after that ball. When you got there, you didn't do much with it. But when you ran away (laughs) again, you know, like you can really accelerate. And so I want to teach you how to hurdle. And I was like, oh, like, dude, you, you don't want me on your team. Like I got cut from every team at the school already. And he's like, no, no, we don't even make cuts. So just, just come out. So I'm like, yes, totally making that <laughs> And uh, sorry. No. So how old were you then? I was in the ninth grade. So I was 14 or 15. Like in that, uh, I guess at that point I would have been, am I 15 at that point? No, I'm 14. 
<laughs> well, so, okay. How, how does it feel getting cut so many times? I mean, were you undeterred? Were you devastated? Did you just not really care that much? Like, what, what were the emotions? Cause I mean, a 14, 14 year old is going to be through some emotions anyway. So I'm imagining yeah. this has kind of got some weight to it. Yeah. I, I feel lucky that for whatever reason, I don't remember at least like, I'm sure there was a tougher days or darker moments where I would have felt like more defeated, but I don't remember it being too, too like defeating on my self-confidence or, and I think that's because I really hadn't defined myself as an athlete at that point. And so, you know, it was just kind of like another, like, try this thing. Oh no, I'm not good at it. So it's like, oh, that's fine. Like I'm, you know, if I got cut from something now, I'd probably be more defeated because I'm more in my brain, I'm supposed to be good at athletics. And so I think at that point I hadn't defined myself by sport. And I also had some really amazing siblings. And this is a connection I've only kind of like made recently that I was able to, not that I have amazing siblings, (laughs) I've known that for a while, (laughs) but they were a big part in me being able to kind of keep getting back up and be cut. and, And like, I had a sense of belonging with them in the sense that I had four, there's four kids in my family. And so I'm the third child. And so I have two older sisters and one younger brother. And my eldest sister, she went away to Nicaragua with an organization called One World. And you pretty much go down there and you help a family that's in need and you become like an additional source of income and you live how they live and you understand how strong their community is because it's how they survive. And she went down there and learned that lesson. And when she came back after she was there for eight months, she just like brought that to our family. And, and you know, suddenly my sister, who's eight years older than I am, she's 18, I'm 10. And she wants to hang out with me. Like, I think this is the best day ever. <laughs> and so she would plan these siblings days where she would take us and she could drive. So she could bring us wherever we wanted to go. And it'd be just us kids, no parents. And I think they just gave me such, again, a sense of belonging of kind of like purposeful living of like, I'm here to support my siblings and my siblings will be there to support me. That when I was getting cut from teams, it was like, yes, of course, like a little bit defeating, but I think because I wasn't defined by that and I had this amazing support system around me, I was able to keep getting back up. Oh my goodness. I love that. That is so cool. And to have an 18 year old sister that's going to want to be with you and drive you around. I mean, that's definitely, <laughs> definitely yeah, a right. bonus. Well, <laughs> so did in, in a world now, I feel like sometimes, especially at least in the area I live in, I feel like kids are specializing and become professional by like 12 years old. Did you even do other sports before you got even tried out and got cut from all those high school teams? Or were you just not even into that at all? I did try. Like I was on a baseball team with one of my sisters and I was just like doing cartwheels in the field. I um I was on a hockey team because my dad so badly wanted one of us to become, you know, a good hockey player. <laughs> and I was so terrible though. He would like bench me even when I it was like the final moments. He's like, Yeah, take Sarah off the ice. Like we need to actually try to win here. And then certainly like was interested in being active. Like I liked being active, but I I hadn't really tried to like train or specialize in anything at that point. And as a summer job, I coached gymnastics to like little like junior development students. Um, and so, you know, if, if I did anything consistently, it was probably that like I did a bit more gymnastics, which was probably really great for st- building strength and, and core development, you know, knowing what, what's on my horizon eventually becomes track and field. But yeah, if, if I had to say what I was doing before, that was like a little bit of gymnastics and then a lot of bit of everything. 
Oh, that's that's cool. Well, it's just so fascinating for me because you you really weren't that. I mean, you were a little bit involved, like you said, you're active, but then all of a sudden you're on this one team that's not going to cut you. But then you go from zero to competing internationally in like eight months. I mean, what is that skyrocket trajectory like? <laughs> um, I think ignorance is bliss. Like I had no idea that like everyone doesn't just develop at this rate, you know, (laughs) I just like thought that like, Oh, you know, you train and then you get better. And like, that's what, that's what's happening to me and my coach and certainly other high school athletes that were training in that same group with me, they were noticing how rapid that development was and kind of saying like, Oh my gosh, Sarah, like, I can't, I can't wait to see what you're going to do this summer. Like, Oh my gosh, like you've done those things. And I'm just like, yeah, like, I guess it's like going to be interesting to see what I do, but like, <laughs> I don't know why you guys are so excited about it, you know, like it seems whatever. And within that eight months, like I liked seeing progress. I liked seeing what else I could do. I liked, I liked now being able to be a bit like known for something. And I think I got some recognition kind of early on by like winning like our regional championships and our city championships, and then made the finals at our provincial championships. And like, that recognition made me want to like push myself a little harder and do a bit more and see what else I could do. And so I was lucky that like, again, like I just, I'll probably credit everything I say today to like the support networks I had around me, like having my coach who was my high school teacher, just really believe in me before I ever believed in myself, like that roller coaster towards the eight months of like making my first national team. I felt like I could he was seeing so much in me that I was like, okay, I guess I can do more. Like I was just like kind of blindly trusting, like if he thinks I can do more, I probably can do more then. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was really exciting. <laughs> That's so cool. Cause I, I mean, I kind of feel like I had a little bit of a similar thing. Cause I, I didn't start my sport diving until I was about 15 also. And I had this coach who, I felt really embarrassed because he asked me what my goals were. And I felt really embarrassed saying out loud that I wanted to go to the Olympics because I mean, I had just started. I felt really stupid, but I, for some reason, said it and he didn't laugh. He just was like, all right, well, if that's what you want to do, these are the things we need to do to get there. And it was like, wait, wait, what? We we can get there. (laughs) I never had (laughs) anybody believe in me like that. And it's, it's amazing when somebody else, like, I mean, cause you're, you're, you obviously at some point have to have that in yourself, but to have somebody else who believes in you too, that's very powerful. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like it just, it lights a bit more fire because we don't trust ourselves. <laughs> we're, we're like, uh, like, is that really true though? Am I just trying to make myself feel better? Like, and when someone else says it, you know, you're instantly a bit more likely to believe it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very true. Well, you were winning national titles. Everything seemed to be going according to plan. And then suddenly you're sidelined for a very long time with a stress fracture in your femur. I mean, I can't even imagine that has got to be one of the most painful things. Like walk us through that time and how you got through that. Yeah. You know, I set my sights on the Olympic games. I want to make this dream come true. I had never touched Olympic standard. And so I needed every day, week, month to make it happen. And when I get that injury, I'm heartbroken. And I was supposed to only have to sit out for three months, but it ended up turning into nine months of sitting out. And so by the time I was cleared to run, I only had about six months to get back to who I was and then improve an entire second in order to qualify. And I remember just like crying myself to sleep, like questioning my self-worth, considering giving up, like, why would I keep going and doing this if if I'm just going to end up missing the goal and like, it's going to hurt more than like, should I just walk away now? And I know certain mornings I'd wake up and I'd be like, okay, 
let's go talk to my physiotherapist, talk about how we can stay fit, how we can stay motivated. What are the things we can do that are in my control so that I can stay within reach and like maybe just possibly still have like this dream in sight. And so that was a moment of inspiration, but then I'd have those dark nights, like that very night. And it would just be this roller coaster ride of up and down and up and down. And eventually when I got cleared to run nine months later, on my first day back to training, I finished jogging at the track and I immediately went to the tattoo parlor to get the word believe tattooed on my wrist. And it's something that like my dad was so mad at me for (laughs) (laughs) because you know, he was so mad I got a tattoo, but for me, it was going to be, I had been like listening to music that had the word believe in it that like, just like motivated me, inspired me to be like, no, if anyone can do this, it's me because I could have given up. I could have quit. I could have walked away in those nine months and I didn't. And so I wanted to have that word right on my wrist, right where I could look at it as I pursued that next six months of like trying to make this dream come true. And so getting that word tattooed was going to be a way for me to kind of not have to sit there and reflect and journal and like take it all in, you know, to like re-spark the fire. But instead I could just look down really quick, be reminded and be back on track, like quite literally. And so, you know, anyone who's dealing with an obstacle and trying to overcome odds and circumstances that feel like your hands are tied or that, you know, there's, there's no real other option. I encourage you to find your word and write it down. You don't have to tattoo it on yourself, but put it on a sticky note and, you know, put it right next to your desk or make it your phone background or your screen display or something that you just kind of like bump into it day after day. Because I think finding that word for me, like really, really helped me remind myself why yesterday I said I could when today, for whatever reason, I think I can't. I love that. It's like a good trigger word, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, so tell me a little bit more about, because I know, I mean, nine months for this thing to heal. And I I saw a video of you talking about this, but it wasn't like you just thought, okay, in nine months, I'll be better. It was like you had to check back in every five weeks or something, like hoping to get good news. Like, so how, (laughs) I mean, walk me through that. And and, and you're talking about the roller coaster. And I mean, how how do you not fall off the roller coaster in that time? (laughs) Well, yeah, you're right. Like I, I would go back to the doctor and then we would do an MRI and then we would check if it was healed. Then nope, not healed. Come back in another month and then wait that month and feel like, okay, this month it's going to, I'm going to be recovered and then do the MRI and you go back, get it checked and nope, still not healed. And it's really defeating because you have more facts that will tell you, <laughs> you have more instances where you've been not healed than anyone ever telling you, yep. Okay. You're good to go like progress. And so that was really challenging to deal with. And I would almost like live and die by how my leg felt that morning when I woke up where it's like either be the best day ever, like I'm totally on track to like come back or worst day ever where I'm just like crying all day on the drop of a hat because I'm, I'm just so frustrated and over the process of the roller coaster ride of emotions. And yeah, like one of the things is I, I, I looked down at that belief a lot um, that I had like written down, like it wasn't tattooed on my wrist yet, but it was just like written down. I would listen to, to songs that had the word believe in it to help just refocus my brain on something else that was in my control, that I could remind myself that I still wanted this, that it was still worth pushing forward, like really connecting to like why it was worth continuing to push forward. And I would keep a journal and a log of what I was doing in cross training, 
you know, it felt like I was never making progress because I wasn't actually getting to train for real, but I also was doing different exercises and core work and, um, you know, different mobility things that were going to allow me to be a better athlete, have stronger fascia and like mm-hmm. more connected, like almost like your fascial lines from like your right shoulder makes your left leg stronger. And like just strengthening all of that was going to allow me to be a better athlete. And if I could keep track of that, I could convince myself and not just to make myself feel better, but like tangible facts. Like I was, I really was working on these things. And so I could show true progress and it was not an easy process. I didn't always hundred percent believe it, but keeping that log of progress really helped me stay like stay the course in a position. Yeah, exactly. Where I felt like it was worth it. Yeah, no, I love that because again, like you said, it kind of, it gives you something that you're like, you're actually saying, okay, I am doing something. I am making a difference. It's encouraging. It's when mm-hmm. when you desperately need some encouragement, you know, and some validation yeah. and feel like you are moving forward. Like that's it. And, and I, I mean, maybe you've noticed this too. Um, I just had a podcast episode a couple of weeks ago where we talked about injuries and I've, you know, like many elite athletes, I've had a lot of injuries, but a lot of times when we get injured and you're forced to do these things that maybe you wouldn't normally do if you were healthy, you actually can come back as a better athlete than maybe you would have been if not having gone through the injury. I mean, have you seen any of that at all? Um, Because the way you're talking about it does sound like you kind of tapped into this whole other area. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like you're you're focusing on things that you wouldn't have either a had time for when you're like kind of in full-time training and juggling other things in your life or whatever, or things that you wouldn't have put as much intention and effort and emphasis behind because you, you don't even learn how important those things can be until (laughs) you're almost like forced to realize. And so you can kind of overvalue the hard workout, the like big chunk, like the thing that's obvious, that's going to help you improve Versus, And we undervalue the things that are less obvious and can provide other like really great leaps and bounds and help amplify the big chunks of of training and stuff like that. And so I a hundred percent think being injured, sitting out, having that time to strengthen my body in different ways played a role in me coming back as the athlete I was and, and having the ability to run as fast as I did in order to hit Olympic standard. So cool. And so, I mean, you have, you come back from this thing finally after nine months. And like you said, you only had six months. I mean, how intense was that? Were you able to jump right back into it or had your leg atrophied and it took a while or yeah. What, what was that like six months leading up to it, trying to make that Olympic standard and all that stuff? I was garbage when I first got back. (laughs) I was so, so bad. And I was getting beat by people I should have never been getting beat by. And just like, you know, at the back of the pack in intervals, just like trying to hold on. And I rem- I honestly like remember a specific workout. It was like November, it was freezing. And like, I am in so much pain. My body is so flooded with lactic acid. And I just tried to tell myself like, right now, whatever I'm feeling is my body physically getting better. <laughs> like I am physiologically adapting in this moment because of how much lactic I can feel in my body. And it was just like so painful, but I was like if I can just like get to the finish line while feeling like this, 100% I'm better tomorrow. <laughs> you know, like 100%. There's zero guessing. And so it was like holding on to that thought even though I was so terrible when I first got back. And I did give up in a number of workouts actually at the start because at the start of getting back because it was so such a cry from like who I used to be before I got injured before having to sit around for nine months 
And so I just would get so mentally defeated and like, you know, halfway through an interval, I just start walking and my coach knew exactly what I needed. Like I was never in trouble. Like he wasn't the type of coach, like he knew the voice in my head, the way I would treat myself later (laughs) based on the fact that I gave up or had to walk in an interval or whatever. Like he knew that that would be enough to almost like (laughs) have demons come out in my own head (laughs) that would prevent me from doing it the next time. But it, it probably happened like at least five times in early on of those first few weeks of training. And then it was like, just a matter of, he would just be like, keep going. Like just, even if I stopped for a second, he'd be like, like, let me take a second and then just kind of keep looking at me. And I would know like, okay, and I'm going to finish this now. <laughs> and so like, just like finish the run. And then I would finish that run. And, and the more times I overrode the, I want to give up, I want to give up. And I just kept going and then got to the finish line, the more my body adapted the less times I had to, I want to give up, the more times I was able to keep pushing through. And then that consistency built up over time that allowed me to eventually get to the place of hitting Olympic standard. Mm, so cool. What So what was Olympic trials like? And tell me about the Olympics in London also. So Olympic trials, I was like petrified, absolutely petrified, because I, I was just keynoting yesterday, sharing this with a group about how they were like, were you more nervous for making the Olympics, like at Olympic trials, or were you more nervous at the Olympics? And I said, I was way more nervous for the Olympic trials. Yes. Because, you know, that was like, I could either become an Olympian, something that like people recognize it's a title, it's an accolade, you know, there's a lot of bells and whistles that come along with becoming an Olympic athlete. And if you make that jump up, it's like going from, from having a high school diploma to then getting an undergraduate degree where now you suddenly have access to like, you know, tons of jobs. And like, if you only have a high school diploma, that really limits your ability to like access different career opportunities. But once you have an undergrad, you know, you, you can pretty much access 90% of them, you know, like you can get a good number of them. That's a good comparison. Yeah. And then when you become an Olympian, now I'm there, I'm at the Olympic games. Now, sure. I, I might try to make the Olympic final. I might, you know, if you win a medal, that's a, that's a whole other degree, like another degree probably, but you know, just trying to make the Olympic final from that point forward. Well, I've already gone from high school diploma to, to undergraduate degree. So now being at the Olympics, it's a much smaller jump up from, you know, now it's maybe like getting an undergraduate degree to going into a master's degree. Like the jump is just a little less high. And so I was way more nervous at Olympic trials because it's that bigger jump where like, if you make this happen, you know, like there's a lot that comes with it. And so that's super exciting and also nerve wracking. So I was petrified, like so, so nervous, just thinking in my blocks, like, I hate this sport. <laughs> like, why do I do this? <laughs> and um, gun goes off. I come out super hard. I'm charging down the home stretch, like every ounce of my body flooded with lactic acid. And I knew if I won the race, I was going to the Olympic trials. And I've had moments where I bail on the last hurdle. Like you're so tired. You try to leap up that like my coach and I had been working on in those weeks leading up to the Olympic trials, like you're going to be pushing to the limit. And so you need to be so aware at hurdle 10, the final hurdle, like you need to be doing everything in your power to just make sure you come off that hurdle strong. You don't hit it. You don't fall down. You don't do any of those things. Like be so focused for that moment. And so I couldn't see anyone as I was coming into the home stretch into that final hurdle but I knew I needed to get over that thing before I could have any type of like, oh gosh, like, you know, like this is really happening. And so when I jump up over that hurdle, like my arms go way out to the side for balance because I'm just like on my last <laughs> drop of, of any energy. 
and I get over the hurdle. I like sideways run to the, to the finish line. Like my body is shutting down and I win the race and I hit Olympic standard. And in that moment knew I was going to the London Olympics and it was the most contrasting of feelings where like, I am elated. I am so excited for what's like, I've just realized, but at the same time, my body is in so much pain. I'm about to throw up and die and be alive. <laughs> like, I don't know. There was a, yeah, like I said, quite a contrast. You're like, worth it, worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was, I mean, you make this dream, like you said, you've, you've got this first big jump, this big hurdle. And not to be too cliche there, but, and that's this awesome moment. You are this Olympian, even though your body is like dead, but you get to go to London and compete in the Olympic Games. Was it everything you hoped for? What was your Olympic experience like? Yeah, my walking into the stadium, like in the most important races of my life, like I've been able to ignore all noise, but the Olympic Stadium has like 80,000 people in the stands (laughs) and London, specifically Europe, like they know track and field really well. Like they are a big athletics track and field country and and continent. And so every seat was packed. And you know, that's like that's the case for a lot of Olympic games, but they knew when to ooh and ah and they knew what was a good time. Like the 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 culture there, like they really understood track and field. And so it was you could feel the energy and like kind of electricity. And I wouldn't look up when I walked into the stadium because you know I'm there to do a job. I need to like you know, the track is still 400 meters. There's still 10 hurdles in the way, like do the thing and then (laughs) take in the moment. And that's not how everyone operates, but that's how I felt like I needed to operate. And so I didn't really look up. I just looked down at my, like at my feet following along as the marshal walked us over to our starting blocks. And then I did my thing I always do and ran over hurdle one to just test it out. And then got behind our blocks, (laughs) like got into the thing, waited for the starter to say set. And then, like I said, it goes pin drop silent. And in the most important races of my life, when the gun goes off, I hear nothing. I just lock into completing what I need to do. But 80,000 people is a lot of people. So (laughs) when the gun went off, I remember my very first thought was, that's a lot of people. (laughs) And so like run over the hurdles, like, and I was in that heat with a great British athlete and it being in London, obviously they're cheering for her we were charging down the home stretch and there's this epic shot that a photographer caught. It's an aerial shot from like way up high in the sky. You can see us. We are like stride for stride over the final hurdle and on the track, the Olympic game, the Olympic rings are imprinted into the track. And so it's this epic aerial shot of us, two tiny little dots jumping over the final hurdle, like in perfect sync with the Olympic rings underneath us. And it's just, it's so cool. And the crowd at that moment, when we jumped over it, like together over the final hurdle leading into the finish line, they wanted her to win. I pretended it was for me, but (laughs) they were like fighting for her to beat me. And the decibel that the noise went to is like something I've never heard. Like it was already so loud. And then when they went like, like so loud, like it was wild. It was wild. Oh, that's what, do you like that kind of noise? Or I mean, obviously it might be a little overwhelming, but did you like enjoy that? Did you draw power from that or? Yeah, like I did. I really did. Like I, even though like I deep down knew they were cheering for her, like I could like, pretend they were cheering for me. And it just felt like, like I said, like electric, like you almost like felt wind at your back because of all of the breathing, like the loud screams, you know, like it, it really did. Like it was just so cool to like experience that. 
and you're in so much pain in that moment. So you don't, can't really capture it all. But <laughs> I do remember that specific moment of it just being taken up a notch. That is so cool. Well, you sure came back strong too the year after the Olympics. You earned a medal at the university games, but then your stress fracture came back. What, did it not, was it not fully healed going into London? It was, but I think like the structural integrity of it was like forever. Like it was healed. Like technically like, you know, doctor would have called it healed, but bones are non-vascular. Like they don't have blood vessels to them. And so they are really hard to get nutrients and resources to heal as solid. And while bones are, once you crack them fully, they're supposed to heal even stronger than they were previously because mine was a stress fracture where it's almost like a porous bone that like, it's like a tiny crack in the middle. It wasn't broken enough for my body to like really heal it, to like super heal it so that it's stronger than it was previously. And so I think there might've just been like a tiny little air bubble (laughs) that was just like left over. And so the structural integrity of it was just not good. And the stress fracture came back and forth. Like it was about management, honestly, at that point for for most of my career, it was like, yeah, it would flare up. It would get a little bit worse. And it was just about not going to the point of full stress fracture, but it still did a couple more times. How, how, well, how do you, how do you wrap your mind around that? Knowing it's like this thing that you can't seem to shake. I mean, do you, do you go forward? Like, well, now I know how to handle it. I can get through it. Or is it just like fill you with doubt and anxiety? Honestly, it's probably like what I can compare this to is probably the way that we've all been dealing with the pandemic or think about how scary it was at the beginning, like last March, March, 2020 thought of like anyone getting sick was like petrifying. And now it's like, we've become a bit numb to it. Like, oh yeah, this person got sick. Oh no, they're fine. Like, oh yeah, we're at 10,000 cases a day now, you know? Like, And it's just like, it's actually worse. It's actually, you know, even more scary than it was previously but you've just become numb to it. So we just kind of keep operating. Like, yes, we're doing the things to try to prevent it. And like, but we're also carrying on with our lives. And that's kind of exactly how I had to operate with this injury. Like it was like, now that my bone is like breaking, you know, every other year, pretty much like I was probably in more of a dangerous situation. And actually in 2016, I remember being in Europe and I actually called home to get health insurance because I told my coach, I was like, it hurts so much that I'm scared tomorrow when I run. I could break in half. Like my whole femur could break in half. It was like oh. to a point of like dangerously broken. <laughs> and like, that's the worst. I've, but yet I was still going to, I was like going to race the next day. There was no question about that. And it was more about like, do I have health insurance? So if I do break in half, I have, I can do this. <laughs> oh my goodness. But, yeah. Which is kind of unreasonable. I think athletes but are crazy. It, it was, <laughs> yeah, no. really. It's not healthy. Kids don't do this. <laughs> this doesn't encourage. <laughs> but yeah, you become numb to it. You learn how to manage it enough where you're like, mm, I can probably push this just a little bit more because, you know, it's been worse before, you know, like, and I need to keep going. And it just became about management and like kind of operating still as like, well, I want to get, I want to do this thing. Like I want to compete at this race. I want to make this team. I want to do whatever. And so, yeah, managing it honestly just became about, okay, well, what's the bare minimum we can still do so that we can still have the outcome we want. We can remove some stuff that seems like not as important, but I want to, keep moving. <laughs> right. So have goals. Yeah. You still want to yeah. reach, reach these goals, but well, so how was that road toward Rio 2016? Because you, like you said, you dealt with a stress fracture several times, but you were kind of geared up for that trials, right? Yeah. So like I had just come up winning a Pan Am game, silver medal, um, the 2015 Pan Ams. And so heading into the Rio 2016 Olympics, 
I was now in like the best shape of my life. I was absolutely ready to like go do the thing, <laughs> you know, retire from sport on a high note, like, you know, maybe make the Olympic final. Who knows what happens from there? Hurdles is crazy. Like, you know, is there a medal in our future? Who knew? <laughs> and I was super excited about what that could lead to. But I also knew that all this pressure, all this stress made me feel like I had to, I had to do the thing that people were expecting me to do. And so just before the 2016 Olympic trials, I had a workout on a day. My, my hamstrings were super tight already from the previous day. And I thought about not working out because my hamstrings were super tight from yesterday's workout. But I thought to myself like, oh, but you know, we're two months out from 2016 trials. Like if I miss a workout now, what does that mean? And like, will I be doing everything I can? Like I need to, <laughs> I need to go and win the medal for, for Canada. And so I end up choosing to work out anyways. And in that workout, I end up tearing my hamstring, even though I knew that I shouldn't have worked out that day. Like I said to myself when I woke up, like this probably isn't a good idea. And I know that now (laughs) that I did that because I felt like I had to do the workout because I'm Sarah Wells, the Olympian, like four years ago, I was at the Olympics. So I need to do everything I can now to try to like be in that Olympic final and like make something come to life right now. Like I need to go try to win that medal. It's a hard line to figure out when to push and when to ease off. Because like you said, we have these goals, we have these pressures on us and we know we can push through a lot, but then sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes these things happen. So that is a hard line. I I understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you never want to be like the person who feels like, oh, was I just being a baby today? Right. And, and it's, it's really hard to know that. But uh, I ended up, yeah, choosing to work out anyways, tearing the hamstring and then kind of said, I think I was doing that because I felt like my highest level of success was my new baseline. You know, like I felt like I needed to operate as Sarah Wells, the Olympian all the time. And that's so unrealistic because success isn't linear and it's this roller coaster ride of emotions. And, you know, you're going to have bad days. You're going to have to ask for help. You're going to have to have moments where you take a rest. And we find, you know, I feel like a lot of the world these days thinks rest is not productive and you know, I, I myself struggle with this even still, but rest would have been very productive in that moment. And I needed to learn that that night. And be, I like was so mad at myself for working out, but did everything I could to try to rush back for the 2016 Olympic trials. And I was about 90% healed by the time it came around. I knew that I had been a four-time national champion and that maybe I could still make this dream come to life because top three make the Olympic Games. And as a four-time champion, I thought, okay, like there's some wiggle room here. Like we can, we can still do this. And at the 2016 Olympic trials, I give it everything I have and I end up getting fourth and I miss qualifying by half a second. Oh my God. And I was devastated, truthfully devastated. And I took a year off of sport, walked away, said like, I can't do this. Like the sport just broke my heart. And, you know, because of that whole believe tattoo and like everything I had been doing, like for four years, I had been saying since 2012, like the London Olympics, I had been saying, if you believe in yourself, you achieve your goals. I did it last time. Totally worked for me. You should try it. And now 2016, I believe in myself and I don't make the Olympics. And so is this something people just tell you, believe in yourself to achieve your goals? Like, is that something people just say to make you feel better? <laughs> and I took that year off, questioned all of that, and realized I believed in myself more strongly after not making the Olympics, even more so than when I did. And so clearly, you don't build self-belief through achievements. You build it through action. 
And so I decided, you know, I want to help other people build self-belief through action. And that's when I started the Believe Initiative and, and it helps people everywhere take a passion they have with a problem they want to solve. And they use that passion to solve that problem and they build self-belief through action. And early on, you know, this, this program was founded and, and was being used on, on students and youth. And we've impacted over 120,000 students from schools all over North America. And it's been so awesome to see the kind of projects that these students will do where they connect a passion and a problem and build that self-belief where they're like, holy moly, I did that. And it's moved from just being about youth to also now being used in, in the corporate world where companies have volunteer days. They often have like paid volunteer days, yet their employees don't necessarily use them, don't necessarily know how to use them, don't know what to use them for. And so now I'm seeing another way we can leverage our Believe Initiative programming and, and everything I've learned in sport and how we can help inspire people to see exactly what I had learned in that you know, contrast between 2012 and 2016. And that's that you know hard work won't always lead to success. And when you pursue something like, sometimes it's not going to work out, but that doesn't make it a waste. That doesn't make it a failed opportunity. And instead, while hard work doesn't always lead to success, being resilient will always lead to another opportunity for it. And we're now helping people everywhere kind of take lessons they've learned and apply them in an opportunity in the form of a Believe Impact project that makes anything that they've gone through in life suddenly feel purposeful. And that's certainly what I've learned. And I feel grateful to have the Believe Initiative, to have people to share my story with, because it's been part of my healing. And certainly I get to now see the impact that can make. And, and I originally thought, you know, the only way I can make an impact was running fast and being inspiring on the track. And now I can see that that far more people are inspired by the time where I didn't make the Olympics over the time where I did, because we can all remember a time where we felt like a failure, where we thought the whole world was about to flip upside down, people would lose respect for us. And instead of seeing that as a moment of like absolute defeat, an end of the road, a closed door, I really see it as a springboard of creating change and a new opportunity and to showcase, you know, how resilient we really are. I love that so much. I love so much about that. And we'll, and we'll keep talking about that in a minute, but I, I do want to backtrack a bit because I, I think you continued to train after you took the year off, but like at what point did you know that it was time for you to retire? Because I know that's a really hard time or a hard thing for a lot of athletes to do is to recognize they want to retire. Like I remember knowing swimmers who were like, yep, I'm done. Peace out. Like, <laughs> college. I don't want to do this anymore. But yeah. you know, then there's other people who are like, I don't know what to do with my life out of sport, you know, and, and, and retiring can be a scary thing. So like, how did you know that it was time for you to retire? And what was that transition out of sport like? So I, I had been kind of starting the Believe Initiative while I was still in sport, because like I said, the, after getting the tattoo and talking about believing in yourself and achieving your goals, people were asking me to come and speak at their events, whether it was corporate trainings or schools. And so I had started to see like the world of kind of leadership training and, and motivational speaking. And so I had begun Believe Initiative, but it absolutely was not my whole world. And then in 2017, when I, or like at the end of 2016, when I missed qualifying for the Olympics and then was like, okay, I'm going to now like build Believe Initiative with like all this curriculum and there's going to be summits and we're going to do across the country tour and like all this different stuff. Well, then I wanted to like set that all up. But then, like you said, I went back to sport even after I took that year off and that year off was 
about giving me time to heal and space to think about like what I really wanted. But I think I kind of felt like I had unfinished business having felt like 2016 didn't go the way as planned. And it kind of felt like it almost like happened to me. Like I didn't choose to not go to the 2016 Olympic games. Like it was just, you know, all these circumstances. And so I was like, let me just go back one more time and see, cause I would have been so curious. Like what could I have run that year in 2016? Like I was in such great shape. Like what could I have run? So let's go back and let, let's see what I can run. And when I went back, I had now lit this fire with believe initiative that, you know, I'm juggling the logistics of planning all those events and, and traveling all over North America, doing keynotes and summits and developing programming and running programming. And so suddenly my priorities were a bit blurred because I was saying I wanted to come back to sport. I was saying I wanted to still be a high performance athlete, but all my choices were saying otherwise, because I would get on a flight and then fly to California and do an event and then go to the airport, do my par- do my workout in the airport parking lot, and then get back on the flight and then do a, take a red eye back home to the East Coast and then do a track workout the next morning, have a terrible workout. And of course, <laughs> you know, like, of course, I'm gonna have a terrible workout. I've been doing everything but high performance. <laughs> and, and that really showed me like, okay, Sarah, like if I sit here and I really say, are you making choices that are enabling you to achieve the goal that you're saying out loud that you want? Like, are you really though? (laughs) And upon realizing like, yeah, my choices are not lining up here. It was like, my heart is somewhere else and that's okay. Like that's, that's not bad. Like it's different (laughs) than my life has been up to this point, but I think it's time to, to move on and let go. And so even after I decided that and like left the sport and was no longer training, I didn't even officially retire until like 11 months later. <laughs> and so, because it just like didn't feel right to even say it out loud still. And so it took some time to just like process the fact that like track and field will no longer be my priority. And honestly, I think the biggest thing was the fact that like separating from the fact that like you're such a ninja turtle when you're training for the Olympics, you know, like you are, you are so lean, so fit, so strong. And I love that. Like, I loved feeling like a ninja turtle. And so I was like, dang, I'm never going to be that fit again. <laughs> uh, well, I, one of the things that I love, cause I, I wanted to ask you, you know, kind of for other athletes who are nearing retirement or have already retired and are kind of feeling lost. Um, I was going to ask you, I mean, you've already kind of described it, but I was going to ask you like what your advice would be. And I found this blog post that you just wrote recently called Redefining Success. And you talk about kind of the, you know, both the highlight of winning and making the 2012 team and the devastation of just missing in in 2016. And you said that, you know, when you took a step away from the sport for a year, um, you had time to reflect. And you said, I began to question why I let myself be solely defined by the outcome and completely miss an opportunity to highlight all that I had learned and gained along the way. Just because I had missed qualifying didn't mean my pursuit was a failure. I just needed to redefine what success meant. And I love this because uh, when I first ended my career. I'm kind of back doing it again, but I ended on a really sour note as well. And it took me a while to kind of rectify that. I had to go back and be like, well, what were my actual goals? And did I actually meet those goals? Because it wasn't necessarily about ending on a high note. I had other goals. And so I did have to redefine for myself what success was. And if you don't mind, I wanted to to talk about a couple of things that you wrote in that blog post. Um, you you recommended an activity and you said, um, think there are three things. You said, think back to the top three times in your life when you remember being successful. And the first thing you said to do is write down all the positive characters 
character traits that helped you achieve those moments. And then the second thing you said to do is circle the top two to three traits you feel were most integral to your success. And then the third part of this was write, quote, I am successful when I... And then you insert those top three traits. And so you said when you do that, now you have your brand new success criteria. And that's how you can now judge if something was successful or not. And I absolutely loved that. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I just think that's huge on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, that exercise is something that I created and designed to... Like when I talk about this, people always ask me like, well, how though? But how do I do that? Like, okay, Sarah, you're saying it's important to not get caught up in the outcome, but how do I do that? And so when I reflected back on like, okay, well, how do I get someone to get to distill down to that moment and what it means (laughs) and how to redefine it? It's like, well, this is the exercise I came up with. And I think you can't even dispute it yourself, even though like we're all really (laughs) good at convincing ourselves like, oh, well, it was probably just easier that time when I achieved the goal (laughs) or like I, you know, someone helped me and that's why it happened. But when you look at like, okay, what positive character traits that I have to, to embody in order to make that come true, then like, it's like, okay, so like you've just proven to yourself, like it wasn't the outcome that was the successful thing because it took those things, those positive character traits to lead to the successful outcome. And so it's not always going to work out, but if you're able to continuously embody and act from a place of those powerful character traits that lead to success, well, then even in the moments where things don't work out, you're going to be able to rely on those things and find your next opportunity for success because you'll still show up as that person. And you know that those are the tools and the building blocks for successful moments. Like you just, you know, you, you reverse engineered it. And so it's all like a proof point, case in point right there. And so I, I love doing that with people to help them be like, shoot. Yeah, it's right here. <laughs> here it is. <laughs> I love it. And we'll make sure to link to that um, in the show notes and to link to Believe Initiative and your website and everything. I do have a quick question because I know you've got to jump off to get on another call. But um, my 10-year-old was watching all the Believe Initiative videos with me and she thought it was so cool. And she wanted to know how to get involved. And I was like, I don't know. Is this just for high school kids? I know you said it's going corporate now too. Is it also for younger kids? So we have younger, like elementary grade programming um, in terms of keynotes and workshops. And so we absolutely believe initiative. You can um, go onto the website, contact us about keynotes and workshops for elementary grades. And then for high school students, we actually have a, a student leadership program that trains a student leader to run a chapter at their school. And so we give that student, high school student, everything that they need in order to initiate and run a believe leadership chapter And that leader actually teaches their peers lessons around confidence, creative thinking, resilience, um, discipline. And then they encourage or like support their Believe chapter members on building out those Believe passion projects, which I talked about, about how it's connecting a passion to a problem. And then you use that passion to solve that problem. And so, um, yeah, if you are a school and you are looking for uh, a speaker or a workshop host, whether it's elementary or high school, we do that for both. Um, but elementary, uh, we have that programming. And then if you're a high school student or you're a high school teacher that knows a high school student that'd be interested in initiating a chapter at uh, your school, then we have that programming and that the Believe Leadership Program is actually free for a school. So it's always nice you don't have to ask your administrator for money. <laughs> um, <laughs> for sure. And so that's uh, that's 
that's how you can get involved, whether you're a high school student or an elementary school student. Oh, well, this is so cool, Sarah. Thank you. We will make sure to link to all of that information in the show notes so people can find out how to bring that to their schools and be impacted and just like you, maybe impact tens of thousands of people um, all the time. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us, inspiring us and teaching us how to believe in ourselves and redefine success. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.